I'd invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. And please uh, stand and join me. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, and other, other times you stood side by side with those so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You may be seated. Lord, I pray that as we study this faith chapter together, we become more of what you intend us to be. I pray that you grow us in our understanding of you, that you connect us deeply to your word. I pray, Father, that you would see to it that the things of this earth grow strangely dim in us. Help us in that. May our days be consumed in this one holy passion, giving you glory and honor, fitting for the king that you are. Father, this morning... As a preface to your word, we just want to thank you for your church. We thank you for the church for which your son Jesus died. We have been bought with a price. We are a redeemed people, a chosen nation, a royal priesthood. And as such, Father, I pray that this people here would seek to please you with their lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want you to imagine this morning what it might be like growing up in first century Judaism. That's what you know. That's your context. First century Judaism. So you would know all about animal sacrifices. You would know about Blood, you would see lots of blood. Strict adherence to the law in all things. Three annual feasts were mandatory for attendance in the holy city. Sabbath days held in high regard. Rabbinical teaching. Temple worship. Only certain foods were deemed clean and okay to eat. Yahweh God is feared above all things. So awesome, in fact, that his name goes unmentioned. 
And then the Lagos burst on the scene. John 1.14. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. He preached and taught the words of God. In fact, John's gospel says that he came declaring God. People wanted to know who God was. All they had to do was look at Jesus. He was the icon, the exact representation of God. He spoke what the Father gave him to speak. He did what the the Father gave him to do. He preached a startling message early on in his ministry. Saying that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Remember, those were the ones revered in that day. Unless your righteousness surpasses these folks, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm sure that message caught the attention of the people. Jesus went on to the cross. He was buried. He died. He was raised. And by the way, that's the core of the gospel, isn't it? Jesus died, he was buried, he was raised. Let's never forget the core of the gospel. He was raised just like he said he was going to be raised. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not abolish it. Remember, Jesus is the one who said to the people, you've heard it said, but I tell you, you've heard it said, do not murder. And Jesus says murder is not simply the physical act of killing someone, but murder begins where? The heart. If you are angry with your brother. The act of committing adultery in the law was the act itself. Jesus says if you've but looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. You see, the old way focused on the externals. And the new way, ushered in by Jesus, always went back where? Always went back to the heart. The audience that's receiving this letter here in Hebrews, they had grown accustomed to operating the old way. Let's not forget this. The old sacrificial system, the blood of bulls and goats, the letter of the law, right? As we enter into Hebrews chapter 11, the church is needing some instruction on faith. But I want to ask the question, it's important we ask the question, why? Two verses previous to 11.1, we see the quote from Habakkuk in 38 of chapter 10. Now the just shall live by what? Go ahead, you can say it. Faith. The just shall live by faith. We've been going through... This year, a theme of anchored in someone better, going through the book of Hebrews. And we've seen to this point, as we've gone through our study, we've seen that Jesus has been shown to be better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than the earthly high priests, better than the Levitical priesthood, better than the old covenant. In fact, Jesus himself issues in the new covenant His sacrifice is better than that of bulls and goats. Jesus is better. The new covenant is better. We've got those truths up to this point. So having explained to the listener over the first ten chapters how superior Jesus is to all others, and having effectively demonstrated the superiority of the new covenant to that of the first covenant, the question that's left hanging in the balance for the Jewish listener is this. How am I going to implement this Jesus Messiah into my life? By what means... Do I assimilate and incorporate Jesus Messiah into my daily living? How does that work? I love what Ken West says in in, in regard to this in his commentary. He says, says, really, this is the rub for the Jew. The, The Jew would attempt, because this is what he has known, the Jew would attempt to merit salvation wrought out on the cross by Messiah by the performance of good works. That's the only method that they knew. 
He says the Judaism of that day was an ethical cult. It taught salvation by works. It was therefore necessary for the writer to prove to these Jews that salvation was by faith and not by works. See, sometimes what we do, we get so focused on a passage, and this is a familiar passage that we're entering into. Sometimes we fail to remember the context in which it's written. There's actually a reason why Hebrews 11 is where it's at in the letter. So this lengthy discourse on faith in Hebrews 11, and continued on a bit into 12, it's, it's needed in light of the audience to whom the letter is written to help them work through this transition. The writer uses, this is so important, the writer uses Old Testament saints familiar with the listener. In fact, the writer is going to hold forth familiar Old Testament scriptures to communicate faith's lessons. And he's going to go in order. Sort of like a redemptive history charting. It goes in order. It's wonderful. It's a beautiful picture. So the structure for the verses to come. Here in the first three verses of chapter 11. We're going to see that he begins by defining faith. And then we're going to see the remainder of chapter 11 is really providing examples of faith that he's defined in verse 1. And then the beginning of verse 12 then is going to be a call for them to activate faith in their own lives, having seen now what faith is and heard the accounts of the faithful who've gone before them. The call is going to be when we get to chapter 12 for us to run with endurance this race that's set before us. So contextually, chapter 11 is extremely helpful for a group of people having received the truths of the Messiah and the truths of the new covenant. The old way of living is intended to change completely in light of Christ having come on the scene. He is the way now. He ushers in the new covenant standard of living. He is, the Bible says, the way. He's the truth. He's the life. What's called for is a new way of living. It's important we understand this is not a continuation of the old way, nor is it a modification or simply a tweaking or remodeling of the old way. Jesus brings a new covenant, and that calls and demands that his people walk in newness of life. Newness of life. That's what's called for. You know, I was, I was drawn to a few of the passages, uh, some of which uh, come from Paul, one of them from James. But to the church in Corinth, Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 7, for we walk by what? Faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. Writing to the churches in Galatia, Paul says that a man is justified. He's not justified by the works of the law, but by faith. And he give, I love this because he gives us the object of our faith. But by faith in Jesus Christ, right? Not by works of the law are we justified, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says to the church in Ephesus, for by grace you have been saved through what? Through faith. You've been, by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, that saves you. Right? Lest anyone should boast. Praise God he did it that way. <laughs> to the beloved in Rome, we see in Romans 3, 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, even though it's now being revealed, this is, not, this is not necessarily a new thing. It's been talked about. The law and the prophets have talked about this very thing. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. To all and on all who believe. And then I love the, the one that James adds in James 2, 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is, is dead also. Faith without works. You know, James and Paul are writing in different contexts. They're not contradicting one another when they speak of faith and works. Paul is talking about what it is to be justified, what it is to be saved. And we're saved by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. And James is talking to the scattered group who are out and about. And he's trying to help them understand the, the practical outworkings of their faith. And he says to them, your faith is worth nothing if it's not accompanied by works. And he gives the picture as the body without the spirit is dead. So it is that faith without works is dead also. The word faith 
is used in its various forms 24 times in the book, in, in Hebrews 11 alone. And just in Hebrews 11. Context teaches us that faith always, faith is, faith is the pathway for living. And what you read in Hebrews 11 is not simply a gallery of faith heroes. You might have known this and heard that said about chapter 11. The inclusion of such men and women as examples is not intended to raise them up on a pedestal. We need to understand this. As though they were some Herculean Christians who excelled above and beyond everyone else in Christendom. I don't believe that's the point. The faith lessons incorporated here in Hebrews 11 are for our learning and edification, for sure. And we, the church, are to walk by faith. And having once lived in the flesh alone, we now have the Spirit of Christ in us and have been called to walk in the newness of life. A change has happened. Listen, a change has happened if we are in Christ. A change. A new way. And the scriptures blast the news that faith is a requirement for following Jesus. And Hebrews 11 shows us by a plethora of examples. Faith at work in the lives of men and women. The goal being not that we admire and gawk at them. Patting them on the back for their wonderful example of faith. The goal is that we see their example and are encouraged by what we see. And then, listen, and stirred up then ourselves to walk by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the picture. That's why it's here. And isn't that what an example in Christ is for anyway? I mean, we model that the one following or watching might follow Paul, Paul talks about on a couple occasions, he calls the people to imitate him, not because he's something great. Imitate me as I imitate the Lord Jesus. Our lives ought to have something that others would deem worthy to follow. As we'll see here in chapter 13 of Hebrews, the question comes, do we have a faith worth following? Is there something about our conduct that others would see that would draw them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the question comes, what happens when faith is not evident in, let's say, a parent? And the children are left wondering, what is this walk by faith thing? What's this all about? And how does that get played out? Listen, before we dispense, you've got to have, you know, some people just talk out and throw out this phrase, you just got to have faith. You just got to have faith. It's imperative that we're operating and have an understanding of what faith is. It's important that we desire relationship with the Almighty God through Jesus Christ. It's necessary that we have a love for God and His Word above all things. You see, walking by faith is a daily dependency upon God for all things. Practically speaking, faith consists of taking God at His Word and acting accordingly. If you leave here today and you get nothing else, I hope and pray you get that. Faith is taking God at his word and acting accordingly. And by the way, I didn't make that up. That comes from Romans 4.21. Okay? For this to happen, you need to believe in the God of the scriptures. You need to embrace the truths of his word. You need to trust him with your life. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, right? Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. Obey what he says in his word. And you're called to operate this way seven days a week now. The old way is gone. Behold, the news come. Listen, the text today says that it's not possible to please God apart from faith. Without faith, it says, it's impossible to please him. So, if we desire to please God with our lives, what we're talking about here over the next several weeks becomes vital. Without faith, we cannot please God. So, a couple questions for the text today. We're going to be looking at 1 through 7 today. 1 through 7 is, is our task for today. And the first question I believe the text helps us answer is, what is faith? What is faith? 
We'll look at verses 1 through 3. And then the second question, what are the essential qualities of faith? And we'll see this in particular uh, through the lives of Abel and Enoch and Noah. These first three verses begins, now faith is. And that's going to be really the two parts. The first part is now faith is. And then the second part is going to be now faith works. And we're going to describe how it works. So now faith is. What is faith? What we have here is a framework of faith. We have some needful definition of faith. Having just mentioned in Hebrews 10.38 that the just shall live by faith. The writer assumes nothing. Moved by the Holy Spirit, proceeds with a faith definition. This is not an exhaustive definition by any means. But it does provide a helpful foundation for the examples of faith that follow in the chapter. So as you're reading about these people later on, examples in Hebrews 11, you can keep going back to the definition. Keep going back to the definition. Keep reminding yourself of what is faith. Here are examples of people who walked by faith, lived by faith. I'd like to give you a few, and some of you, I know we have a a wide variety of translations uh, here uh, among us. And I'd like to give you just a flavor of some of the translations and give you a, a few definitions and handles here for this, especially the first verse. Because I think what you'll see is there are a lot of different word pictures and handles that we can hold on to. Um... The New King James says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence. The substance, the evidence of things not seen. The ESV and the the New American Standard share this translation. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Holman Christian Standard says, Now faith is the reality of things hoped for, the proof of things not seen. If you have the NIV, it says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. I was looking on and I found in the New Living, faith is the confidence. I love that word because it ties in real nice. It's the confidence that that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. And then looking at a, a paraphrase, and it is a paraphrase, but it's a helpful understanding again of the verse from the Living Bible. He asked, it asks the question, what is faith? It says, it's the certainty that what we hope for is waiting for us even though we cannot see it up ahead. Okay? Some really good translation, paraphrase definitions for faith, chapter 1, or verse 1, chapter 11. Uh, West, in his commentary, says that faith is our title deed. He likens it to our title deed. You think about a title deed to your home. It, it shows that you are... You own that property. It's a piece of paper that shows that. It doesn't show them the home, but it shows them that you have ownership of that. It's our title deed. Faith is our title deed. A Holman commentary says that faith develops assurance about the things which do not yet exist. And the idea of being sure provides a conviction that what we hope for will happen. Listen, not because we can make it happen, but because God said it would happen. That's really good. I really like that. That's helpful. That's a helpful understanding and picture of faith. Stedman in his commentary says that faith is a sense of assurance within us. He's building off of the, the NIV translation. Just being sure of what we hope for. And he goes on and says, it's also faith is a certainty that there are realities which we cannot see with our physical eyes. We're certain of what we do not see. Kent Hughes has a couple terms in in his that I thought were helpful in terms of thinking through this definition. As to the assurance of what we hope for, he says that faith has a future certitude, a future certainty to it. And he goes on and says, as to the certainty of things we cannot see, he says faith has a visual certitude attached to it as well. So there's this future, a hope for what's to come, and there's also a visual certitude. We are certain, even though we can't see it, we're certain And we're certain because, not because we just want to, um, in our own self, make it that way. But we're certain because of the one who has spoken to us and said, this is what's going to be. And so all of the examples that follow, I want you to think about some of these definitions, some of these handles. 
Blackaby speaks of faith and he says faith is confidence that what God has promised or said will, will come to pass. Sight is an opposite of faith. Your faith does not rest in a concept or an idea. Faith must be in a person, God himself. Faith is only valid in God in what he says he is purposing to do. In what he says he is purposing to do. If the thing you expect to happen is from you and not God, then you must depend on what you can do. That's pretty interesting to think about, consider. Do we depend upon what we can do? Or are we depending upon what God has said he will do? There's a difference. An infinite, holy, almighty God and a finite, mortal, decaying human being. Limited in what we can know. You know, there are lots of people, and you've probably heard them, Lots of people say they have faith. The problem oftentimes is twofold. One, the object of the faith rests either in themselves or in another person or thing. And secondly, the pathway of faith is oftentimes misguided. See, because living, and we'll we'll see this unfold a little more as we go through Hebrews 11. Living by faith doesn't equate to health, wealth, and prosperity. Living by faith doesn't equate to easier living. Living by faith doesn't equate to problems and trials subsiding. Now, I've given several definitions here tied into Hebrews 11, verse 1. Hopefully several word handles, pictures for you to just hold on to. And up to this point, the Hebrew writer has been calling the church to persevere and to endure all the way to the end. And back in chapter 10, verse 34... The writer recalled a time in the lives of his listener and his audience when they joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods, knowing that they had a better and an enduring possession in heaven. Listen, it takes faith to live that way. That is not normal. That's not what a lot of people are accustomed to. That's not okay with a large percentage of people. That happens... As we operate the new way, ushered in by Christ, by faith. Faith has a strong confidence of hope for things to come. It has this future bent to it. Faith also has a strong conviction toward things unseen, invisible to the eye. Listen, living in an audiovisual world, faith is the unwelcome guest. We live in a world that likes to see it, right? Residing in this social media generation, we like to see it, we like to feel it, we like to touch it, we like to handle it. And along comes faith, and we are hard-pressed to stuff it into our old way of living. You see, faith is not gifted to us that we might stuff it next to our old patterns of living. It's given that we might learn the new way of living called for by God. Out with the old, in with the new. You see, the new way in Christ requires that we operate with a certainty toward things we can't see. We need to understand that faith, faith is deemed a turnoff to those confronted with Jesus. Being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see, it sounds a little squishy to a lot of folks. Because they can't see it, they can't touch it, they can't handle it. Neither can they control it, neither can they manipulate it. But we see in verse 2 that the ancients, or the elders, the saints of old, they were commended for this kind of faithful living. They obtained a good testimony through faith in God. And what's coming in the bulk of this chapter will back up what verse 2 says. And then we get to verse 3. By faith. By faith. If you, have a, if you write in your, in your Bible, you might take the time later today, or even just now as we're working through verses 1 through 7, you'll be able to do it a couple times. That phrase, by faith, by faith, by faith. You'll have a lot of uh, underlines in chapter 11. It's there on several occasions. By faith we understand that the worlds or the ages were framed, pieced together by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. There's that 
there's that part of that definition, right? Coming in here in verse 3. What was seen, what's seen is not from things that are visible. See, scientists, they keep researching, they keep looking for answers to the world that we live in, don't they? How it got this way, where it came from, how it was originally formed. And the Bible gives us a definitive answer to how this world came to be. By faith, we understand. Can that get any simpler? By faith, we understand. What do we understand? We understand how the world got to be what it is. By faith. How it was framed together. It was framed together, the Bible says here, by the spoken word of God. When it's talking about the word, it's not talking about the word as in the the Logos in John chapter 1. It's talking about the word, the spoken word of God. It was framed together, it was pieced together by the word of God. God said, let there be. What was the first thing he said? Let there be what? Light. And there was light. When he said, let there be light, guess what happened? Boom, there was light. That's the pattern. Let there be, and it was, and it was good. Let there be, and it was, and it was good. Let there be. And on the last day, day six, it was very good. God spoke and it came to be. That's really, I think, what the psalmist had in mind when he says in Psalm 33, verse 9, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. In that familiar verse in Genesis 1, verse 1, says that in the beginning... God what? Created. God created the heavens and the earth. And people say, prove it. How do you know God created the world? Listen, friends. It's by faith we understand how we got here. There was not a one of us around when God created the world. And the ones who were crying out, prove it, weren't around either. It's by faith we understand. See, God spoke. He created. He voiced the light to come into the darkness and light came. He called the stars into place. He planted the trees with the sound of his voice. He filled the skies with flying creatures and the land with creeping things. He's the one who created man from the dust of the ground. He's the one who formed the woman from man's rib. He's the one who brought the woman to the man. He's the one who instituted man and woman together in marriage. This is marriage. One man, one woman coming together as one flesh for the glory of God. God did this. He spoke into existence the canvas of creation. By faith we understand. I find it interesting that so many are searching and seeking for how the world came into being. It really isn't that hard if you take God at his word and you believe what it says. Not only do we have Genesis 1-1, but even the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, it lists some things about the Son, about Him speaking. The one whom God has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. Christ was a part of this as well. We also see, if we look at the Genesis account, who else was around? The Holy Spirit was hovering over the surface of the deep. God the Father, Jesus the Son, Holy Spirit were around. They were on the scene. So the mention here in Hebrews 11 verse 3 brings to the forefront an element of faith already defined that God made the world, things which are seen, from things not visible. By faith we understand that the framing of this world happened because God spoke it into existence. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. What's hoped for in this letter of Hebrews? What what have we seen so far? Great salvation that awaits. Future-oriented salvation in chapter 2. Entering the Sabbath rest in chapter 4. Imitating those who through faith and patience inherit the promises in chapter 6. Drawing near to God, chapter 7, verse 19. Holding fast our confession of hope. We do that. We're called to do that without wavering 
chapter 10, verse 23. Uh, we're, we're hoping for this endurance to receive the promise in chapter 10, verse 36. And then in chapter 12, verse 22, we're hoping for heavenly Jerusalem, aren't we? Hoping for that heavenly city. I want you to notice that the things attached to faith are the things God has spoken. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. But let's be clear, this is not your wish list of things. This is the things God has in store for those who walk with him. The Bible connects faith to God through Jesus Christ. And that faith has a hope established in the things of God, not in the things of this world. So is your hope in any of the things mentioned to this point in Hebrews? Is there a growing hope in you of seeing Jesus as he is? Is there a hope of that heavenly city to come? Is there a hope that you will endure, that you'll persevere in the faith all the way to the end? Is there a hope that your relationship with God grows and matures? Is there a hope that God's word increasingly drives you how to operate? Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Having defined faith, the writer now is going to show how faith works in the lives of familiar people to his audience, the saints of old. So it's like he says, this is what faith is. And now let me show you how faith actually works in the lives of people following God. Because remember, this was an audience who had been accustomed to uh, meriting this salvation through what? Through works. And he's showing them, no, no, no. It's not by works that we merit salvation. There's nothing we can do to merit salvation. But now we live through faith. We live by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. This is how we're going to live. And so he's going to give them examples now. Now faith works, verses 4 through 7. And these are fundamentals of faith. These are necessary qualities of faith. So moving from definitions to application and implementation, that can be a challenge, can't it? You You might know the facts of what's written in these pages, but perhaps you've had a difficult time connecting what you know and believe with how you live. You You might know a lot up here, but there might not be a whole lot going on right here as it pertains to the Lord. I think some of this is going to be very helpful for us. Faith consists of taking God at his word and acting accordingly. So beginning with verse 4, the Hebrew writer is going to zoom in on the acting accordingly part. Okay? The obedience part, the doing part. So we have by faith Abel. Look at verse 4. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Remember they were brothers, right? Cain and Abel. Through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts. And through it he being dead still speaks. By faith Abel. Now for further study on your own you can read Genesis chapter 4 1 through 15. That's the account of Cain and Abel. I'd like to point out in Genesis 4 verse 10... Following the murder of his brother, God has a word with Cain and says, The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And we see here, just flipping the page in in Hebrews 12, the sentence begins in verse 22, But you have come, and then there's a whole, whole long list of things, and you pick it up in 24, But you have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. I appreciated what Stedman wrote here as it pertains to these two verses together. And he says, it's often suggested that the blood of Abel cries out for the final vindication promised to all the saints. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 and 7. But the blood of Jesus, listen, the blood of Jesus speaks of forgiveness. This seems a likely explanation of the continuing testimony of Abel. See, his faith in God was one of trust and loving acceptance of whatever God sent. He was willing to wait for ultimate vindication of injustice and mistreatment. His faith teaches us that we must often wait for God's redress of injustice. Remember as we read through these examples... ...that the highlight in each of the examples is by faith. By faith. 
the writer is placing the spotlight on faith at work in the lives of God's people. I'd like to give with each of these three uh, individuals we're going to look at this morning a tagline that will help be helpful, kind of a handle for each one of them about faith. And for, for Abel, I'd like us to remember this. Faith moves us to give God our very best. Faith moves us to give God our very best. And as I was thinking about that, I was drawn to uh, the, the scene. Some of you might have seen um, Facing the Giants, a, a, a football movie put out years ago. And there's a scene where uh, the team's gathered together, and, and right now their attitudes are pretty poor. And the one guy who's their best athlete has got a terrible attitude. And coach is talking about the game coming up this weekend, and, and, and Brock is the player's name, and he's sitting there on the ground, and he says something about, it doesn't matter, we're not going to win anyway. And so the coach has him come up with another young man and they do what's called the death crawl. You might remember this scene. And he blindfolds him. And he asks him a question. He says, you're going to do the death crawl and I want you to go as far as you can go before you stop. And he says, I want you to give me your very best. He goes, okay. No, he says, I want you to give me your very best. Can you give me your very best? Yeah, I'll give you your best. You need to give me your very best. And he gets down and he carries this guy on his back as he's crawling. He's blindfolded. And he starts to go and make his way down the hundred yards of the field. And he keeps going and he keeps going. And the coach is down there on his hands and knees and just yelling, but encouraging him to give him his very best. And you know how it ends up. He collapses and he finds himself having gone all the way down to the other end in the end zone. See, living by faith moves us to give God our very best in all things. The Spirit, listen, the Spirit in us directs us onward in God's path. Encouragements and exhortations from brothers and sisters are good and helpful, necessary. But operating by faith will manifest itself in desiring to give God our very best at all times. There's some key words here with Abel that I'd like to put forward One of those is worship. Worship. Notice Abel offered to God. He offered to God a more excellent sacrifice. The Bible says in Genesis that God respected Abel's offering. More so than he did Cain's. There's an element of worship here that's attached to this man Abel. He offered to God the firstborn of his flock. And this stood out to me because it got me to thinking that Abel was a man who didn't give God leftovers. He gave him the firstborn of his flock. He gave, I believe, out of an attitude and a heart that wanted to please the Lord. He had a, an attitude of worship. You know, I love the prophet Malachi because he talks about this and he condemns the people uh, for this, about this. The people were coming to the Lord and giving him their leftovers. And I believe we see here in Abel, as he's walking by faith, he's offering to God a more excellent sacrifice. There's something there that he's offering in worship that's pleasing. There's also the word weight. As we said earlier, Abel's faith was grounded in God and teaching us that whatever may come our way, listen, whatever may come our way, Injustice, persecution, even death. God is just, listen, the Bible says God is just and he's the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3 verse 26. So faith moves us to give God our very best. Look at verses 5 and 6. By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found. No one found him. God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony. I love this. That he pleased God. But without faith, by faith, but without faith, that's verse 6. It's impossible, sometimes it's important for us to understand word meanings. 
Impossible here means impossible. That's what it means. Impossible. It's not possible. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God, he who draws near to God, must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. For further study on this man, Enoch, Genesis 5, 21 through 24. You can also see Enoch in Jude 14 and 15. His name pops up there in Jude 14 and 15 where he is uh, seen to have a prophetic voice there in Jude 14 and 15. Well, you, you might know this already, that Enoch and, and Elijah are, are two that are taken by God, right? They're taken by God. They're not allowed to see death. Elijah was caught up in a fiery chariot whirlwind. Enoch is taken away so that he did not see death. And we don't know how God took him. The Bible doesn't tell us how. But we do know it says also no one found him. He was taken. But I want you to notice that before he was taken, he had this testimony. Listen to the testimony he had. He pleased God. How many of you here want to really please God with your life? Anybody? I hope we have a bunch of hands up to raise up in hand. I hope we want earnestly to please God with our lives. That's the testimony of Enoch before he was taken. He pleased God. And if you read through the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, you notice that Enoch lived 365 years, which sounds to us like a long, long time. But in comparison with those in the genealogy of that day, um, his time on earth was quite short. And before a large number of those years, Enoch walked with God, says in Genesis. He walked with God. His testimony is that he pleased God. So here's the tagline for Enoch I'd like us to remember. Is that faith makes it possible to please God. Faith makes it possible to please God. Walking with God, which is characteristic of Enoch, describes this ongoing relationship with God. Words like fellowship, communion, relationship, uh, koinonia, being a sharer, being a partaker together in the things of God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. The Bible also says in Romans 8, 8, that walking in the flesh makes it impossible to please God. Walking in the flesh there in Romans 8 is contrasted with walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit is what helps us to walk in newness of life. Walking in newness of life is what we're called to by faith. The question comes... Do you really desire to please God with your life? Because as I just asked the question and many hands went into the air. Where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, is in our living, doesn't it? What we actually do, how we actually operate in this life. The Bible tells us that drawing near to God requires two things. First, believing that he is. Believing that he is. Not just, I believe there's a God. I believe in the God of the scriptures. I believe in the God who spoke creation into being. I believe in the God who sent his one and only son, Jesus, down here to earth to die on a cross for my sin that I might have life through him. I believe in this God. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And we could keep going on and on. What I want you to see is that Believing in God is not some trite saying. It's got to be something more. I love what James says. You believe. Well, even the demons believe. There's a response, at least on the demons' end, of when they hear God's name, because they know who he is. He who comes to God must believe that he is. And that he is, secondly, a rewarder or a paymaster. Is the literal term. A paymaster. He's a rewarder of those who diligently... He's a rewarder of whom? Those who diligently seek him. Those who diligently seek him. Listen. This does not mean he's a rewarder... There's a lot of things we could fill in the blank here. It's not saying he's a rewarder of those who happen to attend church every once in a blue moon. He's not saying he's a rewarder of those who uh, say they're a follower of Jesus. But really their lives don't 
matter a whole lot. It's sort of like what Jesus says in the, in the Sermon on the Mount at the end. You know, there are going to be a lot of people in the end going to say, Lord, didn't I do this? Lord, didn't I do this in your name? And he's going to say, away from me. I, why? I never knew you. I never had any relationship with you. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But listen, he's also a rewarder in a different way, in a divine punishment way, of those who profane his name and treat him with contempt. A couple key words here with Enoch, walk and testimony. Those are the two words that come to mind, walk and testimony. By faith, Enoch walked with God, shared an ongoing relationship with him, an ongoing relationship with the God of heaven. And his testimony, I love the testimony. This is the testimony that he pleased God. His testimony before God took him, as before he was taken by God, was that he pleased God. Oh, that that would be our testimony, that we too pleased God. Wouldn't it be great, the epitaph? Here lies a man, here lies a woman who pleased God. Is that enough? Is that enough for you? To please God. Praise God, it was enough for Enoch. What a testimony. The the example of Enoch reminds us that faith makes it possible to walk with God and actually please him. We need to understand that your walk contributes to your testimony, doesn't it? Huh? Your walk contributes to your testimony. No walk in the Lord, no walk by faith, no testimony of pleasing God. Your walking with God goes hand in hand with your testimony. Faith makes it possible to please God. Look at verse 7. By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen. There's that phrase, not yet seen. We go back up to the definition, right? Certain, Certain words and phrases ought to trigger us right back to the definition. So by faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. For further study on Noah, you can read Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9 when you get a chance. You read about Noah. Well, the Bible says that he's divinely warned. What's he warned of? What's he being warned of? A worldwide flood that's coming. Let me ask you a question. Has there been a worldwide flood happen before? This time God speaks to Noah. No. Let me ask you this. Is there, happen, does there happen to be any signs that, around Noah that would lead him to believe that something like that is going to come down sometime soon? No. He, he's been divinely warned about what's coming. He's been divinely warned about something he can't see. His life is turned upside down the day that God warns him of the pending destruction upon the earth. And his faith response has everything to do with believing the messenger of the word. Remember, must believe that he is. Must believe him. He had a a godly reverence for the one delivering the warning. He believed God. Noah exhibited a future certitude of the thing yet to come, which was the worldwide flood. And based upon his assurance of things yet to come, spoken by God, Noah had then a conviction of the things he didn't see. There was this visual certitude in Noah's life as well, a certainty of the reality that he couldn't see. Noah responded to God's warning by faith. And here's the tag for Noah. Faith is the catalyst for obeying God. Faith is the catalyst for obeying God. Noah builds an ark according to the specs of the Lord. He gives them how this is going to be built. God gives him the dimensions. Noah responds by building it. Anyone yet seen the ark? Yet? That's been built down in No one here has seen it. Okay. I'm looking forward one day to being able to see it. It's supposed to be built by the dimensions. That are in here. I've seen some pictures. It's it's huge. 
It's large. It's not at all the, the toy bath ark thing that we see a lot. Right? This is big. Noah is instructed to build this. And you know, his response is, is to simply begin building it. The Bible doesn't record for us Noah's concerns over the fact that rain as we know it hadn't yet fallen out of the sky. The Bible doesn't record Noah's complaints about the assignment. The Bible doesn't record Noah's desire to give input on how he might make the ark more suitable for living. No, it doesn't include any of those things. But when we read Genesis 6.22, we see something like, Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded, so he did. What's that called, in short? Obedience. Genesis 7, verse 5. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Obedience. At the end of of the flood, God's speaking to Noah and he says, Hey, it's time. Get your family out. Verse 18, chapter 8. So Noah went out and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him. Noah obeyed. Noah obeyed. Noah obeyed. When God speaks, Noah responds by faith and obeys God. Noah was moved, it says, with godly fear. Let me ask. When God speaks through his word to you, Are you moved with reverence and awe because of the God who is speaking to you? Proverb writer says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. It's the baseline. It's the baseline of faith and understanding. Fear of the Lord. Noah believed in the God who spoke. He took action in light of the one who issued the warning. By faith, he responds to God's word. He prepared, the scripture says, an ark for the saving of his household. A lot of times in the Bible, the word save has in mind uh, salvation, spiritual aspect. But here, it's literal, saving. He built this ark and it saved his household from what was to come. Picture of something that would happen Years later down the line, in one named Jesus, who was going to save, Noah here literally saved his family from pending flood about to come. His building the ark condemned the world, it says. Imagine, listen, imagine day after day, week after week, month after month, year After year, he and his sons building this ark that God designed. Over 100 years of building this ark. I want you to think about the response to Noah's decision to alter his course of life by following the commands of God in the midst of an ungodly, perverse culture. Consider the people surrounding Noah and his family. Noah is assigned to build a boat on dry ground. The ocean's not nearby. He's building a boat because God said to. And he's been warned about what's going to happen. There's a worldwide flood that's coming. He's going to destroy everything. Faith responds with obedience. Noah didn't have all the answers. You you believe the one who's speaking the word. You believe what he says. You believe that he's going to carry out what he says. That's faith. The world is condemned by Noah's ark project. Listen, this ark was a saving vessel. It was a saving vessel. Those who were brought in were safe from wrath to come. I hope that, that, that fast forwards us to the cross of Christ. Those who eventually got in had to persevere in faith along the way, didn't they? They had to endure with the project. They had to keep at it until one day, one day, God said, It's time! Get in! In Genesis 7, 16, these words just kind of resound and and bring a lot of pictures and a lot of uh, scenarios to my mind as I read it. And the Lord shut him in. 
There was a day. The ark was done. God said, get in. Noah obeyed God in and the Lord shut him in. Safe and secure from all alarm. Protected by the Father's mighty power. Guarded from the pangs of death. Noah became heir of righteousness, which is according to faith, the Bible says. Noah is deemed just. He was deemed righteous before God in his generation. He was a man who, like Enoch, walked with God. And just a few verses away, we see with Abraham, he believed God. And in Genesis 15, 6, God credited to him as what? Righteousness. God made Jesus, who had no sin, to become sin for us, that we too might become the righteousness of God. God adopted us as sons and daughters into his family that we might become heirs of the promise, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ Jesus. There's three words here with Noah I'd like to give you. One is reverence. Noah stands in awe of who God is. Reverence. The second word is obedience. His obedience flows out of an assurance of who God is And that leads to a rock-solid conviction that his word is true even though he can't see the thing promised. And righteousness is the third word. Reverence, obedience, and righteousness. Righteousness comes according to faith. And you know, Noah is a man who's, who's called a preacher of righteousness. Noah was called a preacher of righteousness. And the picture that comes to mind is of a man who has a tool in his hand, has truth in his mind, and has a message on his heart. And I'd imagine over the course of a hundred years of building, Noah preached a word and preached a word and preached a word and preached a word. It seems to me that there weren't many people, in fact, zero extra people over that hundred year plus period of time. Zero extra people entered the ark. It leads me to believe Noah persevered and endured in many ways. Not only did he build something that people, I'm sure, just laughed at, but he preached a word that people mocked at time and time and time again. Noah was a man of faith. Faith moves us to give God our very best. Abel teaches us that. Faith also makes it possible to please God. We see that in the life of Enoch. And faith is the catalyst for obeying God. We see that here in in the life of Noah. Faith is the way of the new path. It's It's the channel of new covenant living with Christ as our head. Faith is God's means of appropriating what we know and believe about Jesus. To a people who had only known a works based system of sacrifices, a message on faith would come as eye opening and yet so needful if they were to walk with God. I'd like to close and leave you today with some faith check questions that connect to the lives of Abel and Enoch and Noah. Here's the first question. Are you giving God your very best? Are you today, are you giving God your very best with your life? And this involves and includes your attitude toward God. Are you giving him the leftovers in your life? Or are you giving him your very best? And listen, there's a difference between the two. And God knows that difference. The Bible says that God cannot be mocked. He knows. Second question. Are you pleasing God right now? Are you pleasing God right now? Are you walking with him in right relationship? You know, there are all kinds of things that might be going on in your life right now. Lots of trials, lots of difficulties, lots of hardships, a lot of things hard in your life right now. But I still want to ask the question, are you pleasing God right now? Living by faith assumes you desire relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Remember, he knows the heart. He knows, the Bible says, he knows those who are his. Third and last question. Are you obeying what God has to say? Are you obeying what he has to say? When he speaks, 
Are you ready to adjust your life to align with his word? See, here's what happens too often. Too often we want God and we pray for God to line up with our agenda. That's not walking by faith, friends. Walking by faith is taking God at his word, trusting that what he's said, what he's promised in his word, he will do. We follow God. We respond to God. We don't ask God to follow our agenda. Living by faith always requires a willing adjustment to align with his ways. So who are the righteous men and women of today? Who's going to hear from God and his word and persevere all the way to the end? Faith consists of taking God at his word and acting accordingly. How now are you going to live? Let's pray. Lord, we need you. We need your grace. We need the power of your spirit working in us to live the way that the Bible is, is instructing us to live. In many ways, it's simple, and yet it's not easy. Father, I thank you for the examples of faith set forth in the text today. I thank you for defining what this faith is and helping us understand why this passage is here where it is in Hebrews 11. I pray for this people here in this church. I pray for each one of us, Lord, that we would desire to please you with our lives. We would desire to give you our very best. We would desire to obey and take you at your word. Help us, Lord, to align and adjust our agendas to what you're doing and what your desires are. And I pray, Lord, at the end of our life, it would be said of each one of us that we walked with God and that our testimony is that we pleased God with our life. And may it be said of us, Lord, that we pleased you. We thank you for Christ, who during his days here on earth, that was his objective, that was his goal, and his agenda was to please the Father. May that very same thing be said of us. May we walk by faith, not by sight. In Jesus' name, amen.